Welcome to In the Queue Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I am your co-host, Andrew, and only Audrey Hepburn could make one of those itty-bitty, teeny-tiny European cars look good. <laughs> and I'm Phil, your other co-host, and I think Peter O'Toole was that rare breed of dreamboat leading man and utterly convincing character actor. Interesting. No, oh, he was, don't you think? Interesting. Well, what would you consider to be a character performance? Would you consider this to be a character performance? No, not at all. This is that kind of leading man performance, the kind of breezy comedy. But, I mean, are, are you kidding? Like Beckett, Lion in Winter... Uh, those are all leading man performances. I feel like those are leading man performances. Well, they're, but they're distinct characters, I feel. They're more demanding than this kind of role that he does. He just kind of tosses, yeah, but he tosses off a role like this. Other, when I think character actor, I think Eli Wallach <laughs> or Charles, I mean, uh, Hugh Griffith, right? Like, those guys are character actors. They, they play characters. Carl Malden's a character actor. Walter Matthau's a character actor. Well, I think that Peter O'Toole played characters that were also leading <laughs> men in some of the most amazingly well-acted films that have been around. You will find no debate here yeah. for that. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us for this, our latest episode. We will be talking today about the film How to Steal a Million. This is a William Wyler film from 1966, starring, as we mentioned, mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole in the leading roles. And it was recommended to us by Christy, who is here with us on the podcast. Say hi, Christy. Hello. Uh, And she'll be joining us in the conversation to talk about this movie, which is a much beloved film of hers, I do believe. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that uh, expression of love for this film... We want to let you know how to find us on 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 the line. On the line. On the line, you can find us. You can also find us online. Oh, good, good. Um, if you want to find us on the line, just you know, stop by around lunchtime, <laughs> the local <laughs> restaurant. We'll be on the line. People say that here in New York. Really? They say online instead of in line, and it really bothers me. Oh man. Quick side note. Anyway, if you want to find us online, you can find us at www.in-the-q. That's the letter q.com. And there uh, you can find all of the posts of our podcast as well as a comments section where you can leave us suggestions. And you, like Christy, can come on the show and talk to us about the film that you have recommended. Mm -hmm. Uh, We love to have these conversations with you and with each other. So uh, so join us in that fun and recommend a movie that you love, a movie that you hate, a movie that confused you, a movie that elated you, anything along that spectrum. And while you're thinking about that, you can also do that. Perhaps it's easier for you to do that on our Facebook page. Mm -hmm. Our Facebook page is in the queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And there you can find, again, all of our podcasts posted, as well as anecdotal references. Anecdotal? That's not even right. No, not at all. Just uh, stick with what we usually say. Just stuff. (laughs) Little additional stuff. Odds and ends. Odds and ends, bric-a-brac, bits and pieces. Popery. Popery. <laughs> Various things that have sort of a tangential relationship to the films that we're talking about, but always serve to inform it, whether that's in a humorous way or in a more serious way. Uh, finally, you can find us on iTunes if you search for In the Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil, and there you can subscribe to the podcast and boom, every single episode will be delivered directly to you. So I recommend doing that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, uh, as I said, we're going to talk about how to steal a million. And uh, Christy, you are our guest. I would love to hear why it is that you recommended this film for us. Well, as you mentioned, Andrew, this is one of my favorite classic old movies. Uh, I uh-huh. first saw it around the, when I was seven or eight, and it's not one of her more well-known films. Everyone knows Roman Holiday and Breakfast at Tiffany's and mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah. some Sabrina. Sabrina and those. Uh, I just love this one. This one and Charade are probably my two favorite by her, and they're mm, yeah. probably two ones that I, two of the first that I saw by her, mm-hmm. and uh, I they have good memories. They're solidly entertaining and well done, well acted, great cast. Just and I, I just love them, and I always like to proselytize. Is that the word for films that yeah, I yeah. love that no one talks about? So. Well, this, this is, is your forum. This is your forum to do that, Christian. We Go appreciate you. This. We appreciate you recommending <laughs> this film. I'd never heard of it, even let alone seen it. I had heard of it, but I had never seen it. And in fact, when I was having the conversation with you, I think earlier in the week or last week, yeah. Christy, I was like, I was like, Oh, I'm so excited to watch this movie. And you incredulously <laughs> asked, you've never seen it. <laughs> I just assume everyone was raised with the awesome mom that I had where, you know, I watch classic <laughs> movies all the time from the age of four. So of course, yeah, of course. Well, the, uh, the sort of brief synopsis of the film, uh, how to steal a million. Uh, it's sort of, uh, it, it it's a romantic comedy. Um, to be sure, uh, with Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole playing the, the leads. Audrey Hepburn is uh, a young lady by the name of Nicole who has a father, played by Hugh Griffith, named Bonnet, mm. who is an art forger. He, uh, he, they're, they're doing quite well for themselves, so clearly he's, <laughs> he's good at his craft. And he, uh, he passes off uh, fake artwork as the real thing. And... Um, Essentially, they uh, he he convinces a museum in Paris to uh, take uh, the Cellini Venus, uh, which is this great sculptural work of art. And sculpture, as we all know, is much more difficult to fake than painting. I know. I've tried, and <laughs> <laughs> I know you've tried. Yeah. I know you have. <sighs> and uh, and so they they've taken this uh, as as a donation of sorts for the for the people of France to put it on display, um, and uh, so some calls are made and various different people get involved and I'm not going to go into the finer details of it but uh, what we find is that a burglar of sorts breaks into their house uh, and looks to be stealing a Van Gogh that Bonnet has been working on. And this burglar turns out to be Peter O'Toole himself, and there's kind of this uh, meet-cute in, uh, in, the, in the front room of their house, in the living room of the house, uh, between Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole. And then uh, as the film progresses, it becomes apparent that uh, the state or the museum is going to test the Cellini Venus, and everyone knows that as soon as the chemical testing is done, it will be exposed as a fraud they will all be ruined and so uh this burglar who turns out to not really be a burglar but we'll let you figure out sort of the finer details of that when you see the film uh comes to the aid of nicole and it seems out of affection primarily Mm -hmm. this being a romantic comedy and they grow what starts as kind of a business relationship grows a little bit more intimate as the film goes on 
and uh and that's all i'll really say about it yeah it is it is in that uh that style of the uh it is very 60s it is very much a uh a romantic comedy of that time definitely i would also add it's a caper a very kind of it is a caper uh, broad sort of you know caper comedy where you know sort of you, you saw a lot of films like that in this this period of yeah. history you know where there was the, you see heist movies you see caper movies where it's like a, a madcap comedic romp all in the the uh the purpose of stealing something something significant yeah, like it's it's a mad 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 world is probably the sort of apex of this kind of film at this time right where it's it, that that took a vast grand cast of like all of the big stars of the time and put them on this great caper mm-hmm. chase um but yeah it's uh it's a very interesting it's a very fun film it's very breezy breezy was a um a word that came to mind often while I was watching this it's very sort of at ease with itself and mm-hmm. uh it's really a showcase for the talents of the leading actors yeah i think yeah i mean that's and that's what these movies were they were kind of vehicles for the for the the leads to do their thing i mean we were still under the studio system at this time although and, uh, although it's getting really really close to the real resurgence <laughs> of of the independent american cinema it's I mean, true. Yeah, this is just before Easy Rider. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're you're less than a year away from Bonnie and Clyde in 1967. Uh, yeah, where the studio system was starting to sort of crumble. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah, but this William Wyler directed this movie, and we, which you were shocked by. I was. I, said that in I was life. utterly shocked. This is William Wyler. I think maybe most famous for directing Ben Hur in 1956. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's or the best years of our lives, maybe a little bit less famous for that, but but still a very notable film. And uh, mm-hmm. when you look at like the lists of the greatest directors of all time, like the top 100 list that like Sight and Sound and other movie periodicals put out, William Wyler is one of those like working man's directors, like Howard Hawks, who was extremely prolific, made a ton of films, yeah. but was very versatile and could do many different types of films. And ca- any any kind of different types of material, whether it's comedy, historical epic, what have you, yeah. And and his style in How to Steal a Million really is at the service of the story and the two main actors. It's a very kind of like efficiently made movie. As I was noticing this as I was watching the film, there's really no kind of camera moves or any kind of directorial decisions that draw attention to themselves. Yeah, no flourishes. No. no, no individualistic flourishes. Yeah, there, there really isn't, and and it's it's sort of about uh, coverage, which is this filmmaking term where you, it's a very kind of, I don't want to say bland, but it's a very kind of straightforward way, cut and to dry. shoot a yeah. scene. You know, shot, reverse shot, close up, wide shot, boom, just the the bare essentials. It's all about honoring the script and following the, the, the signposts that were laid out in the script. And, and back then also they all knew that people are going to see this movie because it's got Audrey Hepburn and because it's got Peter O'Toole. So th- that's also what they wanted to emphasize. And William Wyler, he did not try and, you know, draw attention to himself as a filmmaker. Well, yeah. And, and, and just to give you an idea, I mean, we named a couple of the films that he did, but, uh, but William Wyler, as you say, did Ben Hur? He also did Roman Holiday, another mm-hmm. classic Hepburn film. Uh, he did The Little Foxes. 
He did Wuthering Heights. Mm. The, 19, the, did the 1939 best. Wuthering Heights? Yeah, the 1939 Wuthering Heights. The Best Years of Our Lives, as I mentioned before. I mean, that's a pretty broad spectrum mm-hmm. right there. A pretty, pretty shockingly broad spectrum. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what directors were expected to do when, when yeah. film began in Hollywood. Uh, and he had a long career. He did. He did indeed. Yeah, well... Um, but the, the, this movie is so concise. It's so tight. It's, it's a little bit over two hours, which could be a long film depending on what you're watching. But in this case, it's, the movie is like tying up all the loose ends right down to the very last shot. And yeah. it's just like it's, it's so it's – such, it's such like a neat and tidy job of, of bringing all these different story threads to a conclusion – and it almost kind of reminded me of like a, an old James Bond movie, not just because of the fact that if there's a, a caper or, there, or there's some kind of heist going on, but like there's, there's like little sorts of, of jokes, like visual jokes that go to like the very end of the film that kind of wrap things up in a nice little bow. And it, it, not to give anything away, I don't know if this is giving anything away, but it just kind of shows that you know, our heroes are, you know, they're going to be okay, basically. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the thing I yeah. love about the script is it's very, it's the, the conversation's fast paced. It's very witty and smart and kind of off the cuff and just easy exchange. It's with working with actors like O'Toole and, and Hepburn, really just give them a script and turn the camera. You don't need to do anything fancy. They make it fancy mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, yeah. I love seeing their exchanges together. Well, yeah, this is before what's known as the auteur theory really came to prominence. You know, the auteur, the auteur theory was the theory that the director is the author of the film, and the director should put their own stamp on the film that they make through their own flourishes, through their, their directorial choices of shot, camera movement, all that stuff. And, um, and at this point, that wasn't happening, and and this kind of ties back to what we were saying about about Weiler being the the workaday filmmaker, where he really he was he was at the service of the story and everything else. His job was to make everything else look good, and that includes the 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 production design and and I know Andrew. <laughs> well, I think I think it's funny that you say that because we just finished up our podcast on Cinderella where I complained that the the 2015 version of Cinderella directed by Kenneth Branagh uh it did not allow the various elements of the film to mesh well together the production design and the costume design basically dominated the film uh and to some lesser extent the special effects and it uh it really it was empty nothing it was empty it was empty the, the film was empty and a film like this has similarly ostentatious production design and costume design. Uh, there's certainly the the moment when uh, Audrey Hepburn meets Peter O'Toole in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. The scene opens with a shot of her lace-covered legs and sort of tilts up to show the rest of her body, and she's wearing this sort of very fancy veil. And it's it's this beautiful kind of ostentatious costume design that was typical of these kinds of films Mm -hmm. and it's wonderful. And of course it's elegant in the way that Audrey Hepburn tends to be and costumers certainly loved to put clothing on her, Mm -hmm. um, beautiful clothing on her. And 
but it doesn't it doesn't uh, let that ever dominate the scene or the film. It it's merely an accent, and they actually kind of lean into it by doing a gag where Peter O'Toole doesn't recognize her because she's wearing this sort of ridiculous costume. <laughs> that uh, oh, it's ridiculous. That, <laughs> That was kind of out of the. I mean, like that's, she, that's the way they presented. Like, is like she's it's, trying to blend in and and you know go incognito, but she obviously stands out in the entire rest rest of the restaurant. Right. Exactly, exactly. And there's a note. Uh, uh, there was uh, the I can't remember his name, but the name of the designer that he mentions later on in the film as and it gives this person the night off when she's trying on the scrub woman dress. Givenchy. Yes, yeah. that's actually the person who did her clothing. That's he right. was the only <laughs> designer for her. The rest of the movie had their own costumer. He did her costumes. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> that makes perfect sense in every way. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, I, as, as we said, I mean, I think that, that that is kind of, that was almost the expectation of this kind of a film at this particular point in time is that, the, that everything would be in service to the vehicle, right? Mm-hmm. It would be in service to the trying to make the stars look as good as they could because that's how the studio system worked. They put stars under contracts and then they found movies to put their stars in. It didn't really work the other way around. You know, they, they didn't really think of some high lofty project and then try to fill it with the best people that they could. They, I mean, there was their fair share of that, but they also, when they had people who had the power and the, and the magnetism of, of people like O'Toole and Hepburn, who at this point in time were sort of at the height of their fame. And mm-hmm. He was actually just kind of beginning. This is, he'd only done uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Beckett and yeah. Jim. <laughs> yeah, but he was, he was also a stage actor. And those films had, you could say, skyrocketed <laughs> this him. This is true. But he's still very early. He's still very early in his career. Yeah, he doesn't have the the history yeah. like like um, Hepburn did in filmmaking. Exactly. But yeah. but what yeah. he did have though was not to be sneezed at. Yeah, yeah. No. I mean anybody who had just done Lawrence of Arabia, I think. True. Yeah, I'm not not putting down Lawrence of Arabia. But Don't but worry. wasn't was this like you seem to know his his filmography pretty well, Christy? Was like was this like his first kind of breezy comedic role? Yeah, I mean he'd done stuff on and off before Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia was really his first big film. Right. Uh, he did Beckett after that. There was something else and I did Lord Jim, which I believe was a flop. Uh, and then this. This is the next thing on it. He does uh, um, Lion and Winters a few years after that. So mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn's already a really established star. She's done Roman Holiday already. She's actually several year, uh, three or four years older than, than him and mm-hmm. has several star-making roles already under a belt, and he's still very much on his rocket to fame. Right. Uh, yeah. The early part yeah. of it. But. Yeah, his uh, eventual nomination for eight Best Actor Oscars and winning none of them. Not a single nope. one. My, yeah. I personally think that they should have given it to him for the ruling class in 1972 and given Brando best supporting actor. Cause he was, Brando was not the star of the Godfather. He was a supporting no, actor. Pacino. Pacino. Yeah. Was so, but, but if you've ever seen Peter O'Toole in the ruling class, it's just incredible. It's remarkable. Yeah. Also, he should have won for Venus <laughs> in the same year that Forrest Whitaker won for uh, last King of Scotland for playing Idi Amin. Mm-hmm. But I've got a whole uh, that's that comes back to my whole bias against uh, people playing real people instead of, you know, interesting, fully fleshed out characters. Right. Right. Uh, there's the, what's the line between imitation and acting? And, you know, well, uh, yeah, I mean, because there's, there's 
Frasm, frasm. Sometimes it's it's the the mimicry that people are awarded for. It's because they really look like the person, you right? Know, and and that's an achievement. And and that's what you know Eddie Redmayne won uh, for in part. I mean, it was a great performance, but at the same time, he really looked like Stephen Hawking, and I think that's what makes the most resonance in the the, the Hollywood community and the most movie going community. Well, well, and especially. If- over the last 15 years, this didn't seem to be as big a thing before the the turn of the century, um, which I, I, I find interesting. I mean, there were plenty of times that they gave away awards to folks for playing real people before that, but mm-hmm. it wasn't uh, because they'd almost impersonated them. Right. Right. It, yeah, if anything, they didn't necessarily play it that close to the real person. They just turn in a good performance yeah. that happened to be, share the the historical details of, of a person that existed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I mean take a look at Selma for one thing. I mean um yeah. David Oyelowo he he crafted a character. He he cre- he created a very fleshed out version of Martin Luther King Jr. and it did not mimic him. It didn't mimic him. And he you know sure enough he has to get certain things down. He he got the voice down pretty well. You know, he looked like him sort of pretty well, but but he created a really moving, you know, figure, and it just sort of happened to be based on somebody that we all grew up seeing on TV, and and we know the sound of their voice, we know the way they look, and even if they don't match up 100% with David Oyelowo's performance, it's still he just did a great job in in conveying the inner conflict and then the dilemma and then yeah. the the, yeah. the difficulty of what he was trying to do. It was just a great performance. Agreed. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Mm. Let's talk about how to steal a million. There was one thing <laughs> I wanted to mention, and I think yeah, one reason please. that I love this movie. I, of course, as a young teenage girl, I loved romantic comedies. I thought they were all great. And I had a ton of them in my DVD collection. I've got rid of most of them now. I, they don't stand the test of time, a lot of them. Uh, a lot of romantic oh. comedies are maybe good for one or two watchings, but they don't hold up they're a lot they're mediocre and a lot of the ones that come out in theaters they're formulaic and they're boring Mm -hmm. and and but when you find a good romantic comedy Mm -hmm. that you can watch over and over again yeah i love it i continue to watch it it was a movie made year two decades before i was born well not two decades but close to it before i was born and i love it still and odd especially audrey she was great at these roles Mm -hmm. she's got several of them that are just fantastic and i don't think they quite make them like that anymore no they don't i don't think they do at all um but uh i i actually have to confess i was never really a a much of an audrey hepburn fan in my life but um but i found her to be very charming in this film she really does it's a great comedic performance and it's yeah it's uh and it's the kind of comedy that is almost meant to be kind of like accidental. Uh, it's not like like broad comedy. Like her performance is not a broad, you know, slapsticky performance. Well, she's she's Nuance. she's essentially the she's in a lot of ways she's the straight man to Peter O'Toole's slightly wackier character. Mm-hmm. Um, although I wouldn't say that he's you know out of control crazy, but she's she's sort of straight manning. The context and certainly her her very very strange and curious 
father and <laughs> mm-hmm. an American oh, yeah. suitor played by Eli, Eli Wallach, Wallach who's wonderful. Who, who is wonderful in the film and is usually wonderful. Um, and, and, uh, and so she sort of straight mans them. And, and the reason I think she achieves the sort of comedic uh, achievements that you're talking about, Phil, is because she has that quality about her that she allows her to seem so natural mm. and and sort of uh unassuming and and never uh it never seems pretentious it never seems like she is uh plotting the her next no, maneuver it never seems overthought she's yeah. always very earnest and sincere in every kind of situation with peter o'toole or her father she's the one who says father you've got to stop you know forging art yeah. she she's the one who has like the the strongest moral compass I feel, and she's the one who just kind of po- uh, points out the absurdity of everyone around her because she just is, she really is kind of like this, the straight man or straight woman in this type of role. Yeah, and actually it's those qualities about her that were used to such magnificent effect in what is my favorite Audrey Hepburn performance in film, which is Wait Until Dark, ah. which came the following year. It came out in 1967. Yeah. And is is a thriller where where Audrey Hepburn plays plays a blind woman who is being preyed upon by, you know, Alan this Arkin. terrible Alan Arkin who plays this horribly creepy man. See, now that's a movie I saw when I was a kid. I saw Wait Until Dark multiple times, oh, wow. but I never saw this one. But uh, um, I think that um, one one thing I also wanted to mention about about the film it, How to Steal a Million is that. In addition to the film being not ostentatious or, or overly stylish, these scenes in the film, these are long scenes. Yeah. These scenes take their time. Um, and, and as was of the day, a lot of comedies would have a persistent musical soundtrack that would almost go throughout the whole film. Um, but this film has long stretches where there is no music and sometimes no dialogue, particularly when they're in the museum and they're trying to uh, achieve their, the, their caper. The caper is their caper. taking place. When the caper yeah. is caping, so to speak. The things I like about those scenes in the museum is uh, how they use the other art in in the around. You can see a Calder. To comment. Exactly. Yeah. The, the Calder mobile spinning around as all the guards are running around like crazy. And mm-hmm. uh, at a point where... Uh, Peter O'Toole sneaks out to get the bag and, and come back, and you can see the eyes of the different statues and the paintings like they're watching him following through it. I thought yeah, yeah. that was nice use of, of camera and director, I don't know, directorial voice or what, but it really worked in those moments in, in the museum to help those longer scenes where there is nothing else going on. Yeah, yeah, no. It was... Yeah, and, and, and there were some elements of that scene also that... Uh, reminded me of some of those films that you had mentioned, Phil. The the kind of uh, those, the more serious caper movies of the time. You know the the movies like the the French heist movies that were being made, like Rafifi or uh, uh, Le Cercle Rouge, and and you know films like that, which of course are well known for the complexities of their um, mm-hmm. robberies or or whatever. Um, and there there you know there were points in this where. Uh, there's a great amount of satisfaction dealt from like watching them sort of execute mm-hmm. the and 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 be surprised by their own success. <laughs> but you know, we we've talked about 
the stars, you talked about the costumes, but there's one other draw with this movie that I think the studios were really aware of back when they were pitching this idea. There were certain things that people came to the movies to see back in those days. They wanted to see the, the main characters, the leading man and the woman, and they wanted to see the costumes that the women wear. But yeah. the other thing that a lot of people wanted to see was great locations, great location photography. Yeah. And this was not a film that was shot on a soundstage in you know, Southern California. They actually went to Paris. There's a lot of great street photography. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, like Hitchcock, for example, hated location photography. Like he almost never yeah. did it. He would always do like rear projection. And it was, <laughs> I think it was probably really phony even back in the day and hard <laughs> to believe. But something like this gives a movie a whole new kind of vitality to to vibrate yeah to be like okay well this is a, this is a city that I've never been into and I may never get to go to but I can enjoy Peter O'Toole and Audrey Hepburn scampering around and having a well yeah a madcap affair I think I think to modern audiences I mean it's almost unthinkable uh, that this sort of idea existed back then of of what it was essentially a travelogue within a film right we have the travel channel we can just turn that on and see any any number of exotic locations and things like that. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, I mean, there were movies that were constructed simply to show people other locations and cultures in motion, like around the world in 80 days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Like, uh, like, you know, they, they used the story as an opportunity to showcase other places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was a very interesting and charming and fun thing. And um, that uh, a lot of the I recognize a lot of the scenes where they shot when they were walking around planning their caper is uh, they show up in charade as well. They're in yeah, yeah. they're in that market uh, where the uh, the stamp markets in that open space where he buys the the boomerang and mm-hmm, you can see yeah. the carousel in the background. Audrey loved Paris. She works well there. <laughs> and Paris loves Audrey. <laughs> I had heard that she, when she retired, um, she was she was offered roles like she was offered the main mother role in The Exorcist, but she turned it down because, she, well, she asked, "Can can we film it in Rome?" And they said, "No, you have to come to the states to do this movie." And she said, "Well, then I'm not going to do the film because I want to stay here in Rome and raise my boys." Right, right. And um and the only movie that she made before she died after a long period was always the Steven Spielberg movie. Yeah. Where she played an angel. Indeed. Indeed. Oh, oh that's a movie I saw when I was a child too. You know what? That was the first movie I ever saw that was letterboxed. And I was Ooh. like, What in the hell is going on with this movie? <laughs> Why is half of the screen black? I don't understand. Yeah. But then I then yeah. I figured it out. That'd be Lawrence yeah, of Arabia did. for me. Oh, what yeah. a travesty! You yeah, watched that? Yeah. You watched my that mom on... only. Oh. She would. She refused. She had a letterbox VHS. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I got I mean, to see it in a the theater when it was re-released. I did. I went. Uh, as did I. As did uh, I. A couple years ago, and apparently, mom took all three kids. That would I would have been. That was the summer before I turned five, and I sat through Lawrence of Arabia at the age of four. And she asked me what I thought about it. Apparently, I sat through the whole thing. I said, <laughs> "The desert is pretty, and I love the music." Yeah. At the well, age of four, I had taste. <laughs> both of those things are true. Yeah. <laughs> really no argument there. Yeah. Well, 
thank you, Christy, for uh, recommending How to Steal a Million. I think that it is uh, a fun, uh, enjoyable showcase for these these kind of uh, excellent actors. I don't think it's one of those films that's just... Uh, I think there's a reason that perhaps, Phil, you had never heard of it and I had never seen it. And it's not because it's a bad film. It's just because it is... It's one of those breezy romantic comedies from the 60s. And it, it, it didn't... Uh, it it wasn't... What's that? It didn't have the weight that some of the others did. Exactly. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't have whatever that sort of je ne sais quoi is that pushes a film over into being uh, like a, a really great movie that everybody remembers. I think that this film just doesn't have it. And and it's not to say it's a bad movie. It just it's just it's breezy. Yeah, you know, I think that what it needed was just a little bit more Hugh Griffith. And then I think that would have that would have done it. You think that would have cemented yeah, it? Yeah, that would have made it a classic <laughs> among classics. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Uh, but I I did enjoy watching it very much. Uh, obviously, seeing those two actors, uh, and in addition, all of the supporting actors, the character actors in this film, uh, turn in some some more excellent performances is always a treat. Uh, so thanks for recommending it. Anytime. Uh, in our next episode of the podcast, we will be talking about the new David Cronenberg film, yeah. Maps to the Stars, which has been getting very mixed reviews. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it it kind of sounded like you were going to build it up to say how like awesome it's going to be, but then you were kind of like, no. I undercut it. Yeah, but but that's the truth of it is it doesn't. it's not getting unanimously good reviews. But, yeah, in the same way that Cosmopolis did not get unanimously good reviews. But wh- who is getting unanimously good reviews is Julianne Moore for her performance in Map to the Stars. This I mean, she true. actually she won the Best Actress Prize at Cannes last year. It's true. It's true. So uh, we hope that you will all join us for that podcast, and we will see you next time. See you then.